This is Annie Stevens Gleason, Minister for Worship and Incorporation here at the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer. We continue to have conversation around becoming beloved community. The Episcopal Church's long-term commitment to racial healing, reconciliation, and justice. Becoming Beloved Community represents not so much a set of programs as a journey, a set of interrelated commitments around which Episcopalians may organize our many efforts to respond to racial injustice and grow a community of reconcilers, justice makers, and healers. In this episode, we are sharing a Becoming Beloved Community teach-in from the Diocese. Amy Houghton, the Becoming Beloved Community Coordinator for the Diocese, is the facilitator. This teach-in was a time of story sharing, so we will hear about Becoming Beloved Community from across the Diocese. I do encourage you to listen to the whole episode. It helps us remember this is larger than Redeemer, and this will give some insight to that. Just to note, Phil Duvall is around the 30-minute mark. This is the second um, session of a three-part series, a teach-in of Becoming Beloved Community, and we're gathered together tonight to share our stories of Becoming Beloved Community. So thanks you all for showing up. Um, before we get going, I wanted to share an opening poem for us. This is by Ariah Mountain Dreamer. And so I'll just invite you here as we, as we begin to just catch your breath, bring yourself fully into the circle. The invitation. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I wanna know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longings. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I wanna know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dream, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you are telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself, if you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul if you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it is not pretty every day, and if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand at the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have, I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. Mm -hmm. It doesn't interest me who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. 
It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else fail, falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. I wanted to share that tonight as we begin um, this session of sharing our stories by I think just calling our attention to what it is that we're here to do, which is not to compare how great we're doing and how awesome we are and how how much impact we're making, but really to share in, um, in really authentic relationship, this what it means to be on this journey of becoming beloved community. We fall many times and there's many failures along the way. And we know that every, every one of those experiences is a gift and um, is a learning. And when we can be in community around that, we grow together. Um, and so I just want to thank those of you that have offered to be here tonight to share your story. Um, this is, in some ways, as I've thought about this session of the teaching, it is kind of in the spirit of a story council. And so the flow tonight is um, we're just going to give space to those that have offered to share their story. They've been invited to do so. Um, because really they reflect a, a really wide variety of where we are in this diocese when it comes to becoming beloved community. They are all along that journey. Um, and so hopefully you'll hear yourself um, in these stories and if not, maybe in between the stories. And what you're going to hear tonight are more personal stories of how people have um, have leaned into this vision and what it's meant for them personally and in their communities, whether that's in a congregation or a faith community or um, however they, however, however that makes sense for them. So tonight I'll just give you a sense. We've got um, Mary Beth Ingram from St. Matt's Westerville. We've got Rick Incorvati from Christ Church Springfield. We've got Phil Duvall from Church of the Redeemer, Cincinnati. We have Larry James, who is from St. Barnabas, Cincinnati. We've got Mary Raisa, who you can't see her, but we're just gonna imagine she's waving too. Uh, she's from St. Luke's Granville. And then we have Ed Bird, who's from St. Anne's Westchester. So we're gonna begin with Mary Beth. And Mary Beth, I'm gonna turn it over to you. And uh, I see everybody's got your thing on mute. So just invite you to Stay that way. And Mary Beth, it, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm honored to share my story. I dropped into St. Matthew's on an October Sunday in 2016, and I became quickly attached. I am not a cradle Episcopalian, so I'm newly minted to this tradition, although I am a lifelong Christian. A couple of months later, in January of 2017, Cherie Bridges Patrick, whom many of you know, taught a class on race and racism. Many of you also know Harold, Cherie's husband, who was also in the class. Cherie is a light-skinned black and Harold is dark-skinned. In one of the first sessions, Cherie suggested we all take the Harvard Implicit Bias Test. Well, that's easy enough, I thought. I'm not racist and prejudiced, and of course, you can usually psych out these things and manage to get a good result. So imagine my total dismay when my result came back 
you have a strong preference for white. Not a mild or a moderate, you have a strong preference for white. At the next session, I confessed that I had taken the test and that I was mortified, embarrassed at my result. Harold leans forward and says, don't worry, Mary Beth, I have a moderate preference for white. What? How could that be? Harold went on to explain the internalized messages he received growing up that the color of preference, of power, of authority, and even beauty was white. You may have seen or read stories about young black girls who get a black Barbie doll at Christmas only to tell their moms, you got the wrong one. I wanted a white Barbie. A few weeks later, for Lent, we studied James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And our Stations of the Cross that year remembered the history of lynching in America. Even through all this, my denial was strong about how much this really impacted me, my lived life. First of all, I didn't want to accept all men are created equal actually excluded people. All didn't mean all, it only meant some. I needed to learn more. In the fall of 2017, a blog came across my radar written by Jim Mulholland, note to my white self. And my eyes just kept flying open, one blog post after another. I reached out to Jim to see if he might come and speak to us at St. Matt's. To make a long story short, in the spring of 2018, Cherie and I drove to Indianapolis and met with Jim. And after six months of planning, St. Matthews founded the annual Comfort in Discomfort Symposium, partnering with Otterbein University in November of 2018. Our first year was a cross-racial dialogue on race and racism with Jim and Cherie. Comfort in Discomfort has a Facebook page and a Google group where articles and videos are shared to the group to continue our learning and understanding. In late 2018 and then into 2019, I joined the first Becoming Beloved Community cohort coordinated by Amy and Cherie. We had a weekend retreat with deep learning about the church's engagement and complicity in racism. Then two follow-up days at Proctor over the course of a few months. During Lent of 2019, St. Matthew's studied Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. And that year, our Stations of the Cross were focused on mass incarceration. In the spring of 2019, I traveled to Alabama with the Reverend Gail Fisher Stewart of Washington, D.C. and her chapter of the Union of Black Episcopalians for an eye-opening and heartbreaking tour of civil rights historic sites that included a visit to the Equal Justice Museum and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice more commonly referred to as the Lynching Museum. That summer, St. Matthew's offered a book study on Debbie Irving's Waking Up White, which drew not only St. Matthew's members, but other churches and community members as well. In the fall of 2019, the beloved community cohort had a deep, impactful session with Dr. Jennifer Harvey. Many of you might know Dr. Harvey from Clergy Day or last year's convention. Just this past January, February, we hosted a 21-day racial equity challenge from Ms. Irving's work. I have also participated in at least a half dozen sessions 
from My Work to Do, a program developed by Canon Susan Edwards Acton of the Diocese of Los Angeles, and it's supported by a grant from the Episcopal Church. Personally, I've taken a deep dive in this topic for my heart truly hurts. That all doesn't mean all. When we know that God, to God, all are loved, all belong. That's the factual story, and now I'd like to share just a little reflection more closely that addresses my own personal denial in this journey. I truly was asking myself how much of this I needed to know and learn. Wasn't it okay to just get a little enlightenment, enlightenment and leave it at that? And then I thought, you know, there are other topics and concerns in life when being prepared is not just helpful, but it's part of being a Jesus follower of the way of love. For example, do you need to know about cancer only when someone you know has cancer? Or is knowing about cancer helpful and useful when a friend gets a cancer diagnosis? What if it's your parent, your spouse, your child? Does having an understanding of the impact on that person and the family help you respond? Is an understanding of how someone falls into homelessness only useful if you know someone who's homeless? What about an understanding of alcoholism or drug addiction? Are you in need of knowing anything about these only when they touch your life? Do we have a need to understand care, love, and compassion only when or not until we're called upon to respond? If we know nothing about these behaviors until they're needed, we are useless to anyone who is suffering. Some of us don't have much racial diversity in our pews and therefore we can easily fail to see racial challenges in our culture. But that doesn't mean it's not present. In fact, trust me, when our members are at home watching the evening news, there are conversations about race and some of those are filled with misunderstandings, misinformation, and a general lack of historical context. We use historical context to help us deepen our understanding of the Bible and the stories. Historical and contextual understanding of the times of Jesus when he lived, Abraham, Moses, and others all serve to enrich our faith and help us live it out more completely. We need a contextual and historical understanding of race and racism in America, and it doesn't need to be present in our sanctuaries in order for it to benefit us and our fellow members. Undertaking a study of race and racism isn't about getting people of color into our church. Undertaking the study is about getting into our heart. Now, many people will tell me, and rightly so, but Mary Beth, policy change is really what's needed. No argument. But policy on its own is only a partial answer. And we know this from the civil rights movement of 1960s. Why hasn't that served to eradicate racism? It's, it's policy. But hearts that disagree with policy will undermine the progress the policy can make. And by the way, there was a Civil Rights Act passed long before 1964. Ever heard of the Civil Rights Act of 1875? I hadn't. That bill guaranteed all citizens, regardless of color, access to accommodations, theaters, public schools, churches, 
It forbid the barring of any person from jury service on the account of race and provided that all lawsuits brought under that new law would be tried in federal, not state courts. It provided also that any person denied access to these protections on account of race would be entitled to monetary restitution under the federal law. In 1883, eight years later, the Supreme Court of the United States declared that law unconstitutional. So policy, while needed, is an external answer. This work needs an internal answer, a transformed heart. The Pharisees had all sorts of external answers called the law. But over and over, Jesus knew they lacked one thing, the transformation of their hearts. I have two videos that I will recommend watching, and I'll put the links into the chat, um, or Amy will send it out after tonight's session, I'm sure. The first one is a 59-second video. Everybody's got 59 seconds of Jane Elliott's famous uh, from Jane Elliott, she's a famous advocate in justice, famous for her blue-eyed, brown-eyed diversity training. The second one is a video that's just under 18 minutes, and it comes from Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales. And who doesn't know Larry the Cucumber? At the end of the video, you'll hear Phil give the answer to the question, it's so common, we all get it. What can I do? He answers that question at the end of the video. Thank you for your time and listening to my story and my reflection. So when I was reflecting on what becoming beloved community is, is meant to me um, at this point, um, I kept coming back to relationships um, and, and three different kinds of relationships were coming to mind. One, uh, Mary Beth just demonstrated it is such a good experience to be in the company of people who are doing this hard work um, and, and it is hard. And you learn from their passions, you learn from their experience, you, you, their voices stay with you for a, for a good long while. Um, it, it can be, be hard work and it's, and it's hardest likely on, on those who um, bear the brunt of the oppression, which makes the work kind of more unjust in some ways, that um, there's a kind of entitlement that doesn't go away when you enter into this work as a, as a white person. I was in part of a conversation um, that Springfield is having, the community I'm in, I'm at Christchurch Springfield, and um, uh, they've canceled a culture fest that they have every year, and um, but some of the funders wanted them, particularly after the summer that we've had to continue doing the work of um, educating around culture, and so they've adopted um, several books on race and racism that they'd like the whole community to form some study groups and, and be a part of. So. Um, in, in the planning that was going on, there were, um, there, there was kind of a mix of folks across the, the community. And I remember um, one person who works at City Hall, and, um, who is African-American, who um, at one point just got exasperated because we were having these exchanges about how do we make these book talks excite, uh, inviting? And are there, are there terms that may turn some people away? 
And those are legitimate concerns. You want people to come and, and be part of this reading experience. But when someone wakes up and deals with racism every day and is hearing predominantly white people in a circle saying, let's not offend anyone, oh my gosh, that's gonna feel different. You know, that's gonna feel hard. That's gonna feel like the friendship, the relationship that you may have with that person um, doesn't count as much as keeping some of the white people in your community happy. Um, so even when you're, you're kind of involved in trying to do something that feels like justice, you can, you can put your foot in your mouth or, or just take the wrong steps in any number of ways. Um, and I don't share that as a way of dissuading anyone from this work. I think those have been the best parts for me. Um, Amy will occasionally call them holy moments. You know, when, when there is discomfort in the room and she invites us to sit with them. And it's, it's both a hard thing to call that a holy moment when you've just hurt a friend, um, but it changes your emotional makeup to have that history of having done that. And I can probably count the moments when I've said something regrettable. Um, and I don't say that as if to say, I, you know, I haven't done that many, I can count them. It's just, it just means they live with me. Um, they're very present to me. I, I can go back and number them and tell you um, where I think I went wrong with what I said. And it did involve another person's pain or discomfort in order for that moment to happen. But I do think it is a holy moment when, when those moments uh, arise. Um, there's a metaphor that kind of helps me with this about thinking why those, those times are, are so key. Um, so I'm going to go with an analogy and I'll come back, but honestly, I'm, I'm going to come back. So one of my pastimes is I, I like to get on a bike and ride down to Yellow Springs, which is just not too far, about 12 miles away. Um, and as I'm going down there, inevitably, there'll be some mornings when I'll think, you know, I'm, I'm feeling really good. And my, uh, my, the time I've been spending pedaling, it's paying off, I'm getting stronger. And I look down at my speedometer and, and see, well, it's not just my perception, I'm moving along pretty well. And I get down to Yellow Springs, I take a drink of, from my bottle, and then I turn my bike around on the bike path and I find that the wind has been at my back the whole way. Um, and there are several things that that experience points out for me. One is, if I am getting the benefit that I can't see, I will claim it as my own. I will claim it as something that um, is owing to my innate abilities or my hard work. It will become mine. The second is, I'm not aware of it unless I turn my bike around, um, and then I'll feel it. If I never have to turn my bike around, um, I'm just, the wind is, is always there. Um, and the third thing is that um, I'll probably get on my bike this Saturday and I'll do the same thing over again. I'll feel the wind at my back, and the first thing in my mind will be, I'm doing pretty good. And then I'll remind myself when the wind is at my face um, that, uh, that I've had the benefit that other people don't share. Um, the poet Kohler had said that uh, not, or all metaphors don't, or no metaphor walks on all four legs. So in other words, they, they kind of break down somewhere. Um, and this one breaks down in a, in a really telling way. And that is if I'm white, I never have to turn my bike around. There's never that moment where I say, I'm gonna bike back to Springfield from Yellow Springs now. I am always white. Um, that, that, that experience of having racism come at me will never be mine. Um, so those moments are holy moments because if we don't have those times when the wind, which is in our language, it's in our history, it's in our way of thinking, when we aren't made aware of that wind, 
then we just live with it and we're part of the injustice um, that's there. So I would say the relationships both with, you know, um, folks who are, um, are, are part of the, the, the white experience and who are, whose conscience has moved them in this direction and those blessed um, folks who live a minority of, um, oppressed experience and are willing to be along for that ride. Um, those relationships have been just key for me um, and I'm grateful for them. I would say the second relationship that has been important in my involvement with becoming beloved community has to do with um, uh, my understanding of history um, and how history informs the places where we stand. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's something that lives on within us. Um, if I can just use that bike riding example again, I think the histories that we learn are also histories that are written by that wind um, that's been at the back of white folks. And that what we've seen this summer with Confederate statues coming down is just a beautiful gesture of folks saying, we recognize that history is not the full history. There are voices that have been left out of our sense of the past, left out of our national identity. And so we need to do that work of, um, uh, revising that past. Um, I think that changing um, our notion of the past and educating ourselves on history, doing things like the reading the 1619 project, which I thought was terrific, and um, things like Ta-Nehisi Coates's um, Case for Reparations essay, which is just a way of weaving together a lot of what we know about uh, the oppression that's, uh, that's happened in the earlier part of this century um, and after. Um, that that's one way of dealing with the wind that if we are um if we are uh, moving with advantages knowing the history of the places where we stand a revised history of those places the institutions that we're a part of i think is one way that we can sustain our awareness of advantages and I, I think the the cathedrals taking down the robert e lee stained glass window is part of that growth um, and then also holding up that we're taking these windows down and we need to understand why they were there. And we're gonna be involved in a process um, that, that tries to live into the past differently. We, we had an experience locally of um, uh, just wondering how our congregation was gonna enter into the topic of race. Cause it, again, it's not something that everyone goes flocking to. How do you make it engaging? And I hate to say it, but safe. Um, and so we were going to um, look into the history uh, that, that happened right outside of our own building. Um, and we were just blessed with a master's thesis that um, uh, a guy from Springfield had written called the 1904, 1906, and 1921 race riots in Springfield. Um, and just looking into that past and asking ourselves, where was the church um, in these events that mark the land that we live on now? We are kind of a north side, south side community. It didn't happen by accident. There were events that created this segregation. Um, redlining is another part of that. There's certainly some downtowns that were, where there were gestures that kept um, some racial minorities out of areas. But um, in addition to that, the history of violence is there. So where was the church in those, those moments? That, that has changed the way um, I think about who I am and the land I'm on and why I'm in some parts of the community as, as opposed to others. And that leads me to my last point. I think it, um, the Becoming Beloved community has also been part of my relationship to the church. Um, I, like a lot of Episcopalians, I have those stories that make me fall in love with the Episcopal church. When I was initially um, 
looking into becoming a deacon. Um, I remember going to the uh, Explorers Day event and um, I was sitting there with my partner, Kent, uh, at the time and the bishop said, if you're gonna move forward to everyone in the room, he said this, if you're gonna move forward with this process and you're in a committed relationship, you need to have that solemnized before the church, before you move on. And Kent and I looked at each other and we said, is he talking about us? This is like three years before marriage equality. And we found he was talking about us. And so we needed to go back to the church and said, say, well, if you said I should be a deacon, the bishop's now telling you, you need to bless our, our relationship. And that sent me and Kent on a journey. It sent our families on a journey. It sent our congregation on a journey. And I think other parts of the church went on this journey. So I, I love the church for those kinds of experiences. But we also know that um, the, no church is perfect. Um, our population uh, in the U.S. is about 60% white, 14% black. The Episcopal Church is 90% white and 4% black. And what does that do to our relationships? And how does it shape us when we go to a largely segregated worship experience uh, and we worship a universal God and um, yet our circle of contacts is, is limited? It's nothing new. Um, that's Martin Luther King talked about uh, Sunday morning being the most segregated hour of the whole week, and, it, and it's still true. But I think becoming beloved community is, offers us a way of living into that reality, not just accepting that reality, but how do, I, how do we respond knowing what we know about who we are, what might be the history that led us to, be, um, uh, to have this kind of makeup. Um, and then I think it's also, you know, helps me think of becoming beloved community, not as a committee or a task force, but um, it's the response to the question of, will you seek and serve Christ in all people, loving your neighbor as yourself? I will with God's help. Will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? I will with God's help. Um, everyone's endowed by God with their own gifts and their work of justice will follow from those gifts. So everyone's work will look a little different, but uh, becoming beloved community is one expression, I think, of our central commitments to our walk with Christ. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for having me. Let me start my timer here. Uh, so my wife and I and family, we moved out to Cincinnati four years ago, just about uh, four years ago, we started at Church of the Redeemer in Cincinnati, which is in the Hyde Park neighborhood. We started uh, uh, four years ago last week. Um, and um, uh, kids go to school, the local school, Kilgore. And uh, my daughter started kindergarten. Uh, school had already started when we got here. So she, she jumped into kindergarten and um, her birthday was coming up. Uh, she'd been here, it was, her birthday came up in January. So it was, we'd been here just a few months and um, we were very disorganized people and by were, I mean, are still um, disorganized people. And uh, so we didn't, we'd immediately lost like all of the contact information for all the other parents. We were going to throw a party for my, my, my daughter. She turned six. And so we went to the kindergarten teacher and said, hey, is there a way that we can just bring the invitations to, uh, to people at the school, at the, like during class instead of mailing them? And she's like, yeah, that's fine. But you just have to, enter, you just have to invite the whole class. There's 20, 22 kids or 23 kids or something. And I was like, and she said, don't, don't worry they won't all come um they all they all came to the party so um uh which was fine uh we had it at this this bounce house place in blue ash and 
you know, just like one of those little mini walking Petri dish places where everybody bounces around and they, they kind of cycle the kids through and they, they go to this little room and bounce and they go to this little room and bounce, they go to this little room and bounce and they, then they bring them back to the, bring them back to the, to the room with the bench and the, the table so that we can eat cake, pizza and cake. And I'm, and I'm on one end of the table and all the kids are gathered around and they're all the way down and I look down this table and the table's just so many colors. Um, there were, there were um, pages particular class in kindergarten was about 60% uh, white, 40% uh, people of color, um, black, um, uh, uh, some uh, Middle Eastern, um, some some East Asian, um, just across the board, and 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 um, you know just, and Redeemer, my, our our church, which I love very dearly, um, is is very white. It's a it's a very white church. Uh, I don't know if you could like if there's grades of white. Redeemer is pretty white. Um, um, there there uh, are there 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 have been and there are different times. Um, there's a minority presence, but it's it's just a very small very small minority, and it's a very white church. Hyde Park, as most of you know, is is a neighborhood with resources. Redeemer's a church with resources, so it's not just white. It's like um, the the energy of the place is sort of a well-resourced white whiteness, right? Um, so, uh, but but when they invited me to look at this, when I when I was looking at this church and and when I was part of the process, the search process, and I looked at the parish profile, I actually was looking at the parish profile tonight from back in 2016. And it's talking about the places they believe that they're being called to go. And it says, one of the challenges that we face as we live into our calling include developing more cultural and socioeconomic diversity in our congregation. Um, so they said it. Now, whether they meant it or not, who knows, but they said it, right? They're like, this is a thing we want to do. Well, here I am. So flashback to me at this birthday party and I'm looking down this, I'm looking down the table and I'm seeing all of these kids and I'm, my daughter's six and these are her friends. These are the people that she's going to grow up with. These are the people that she's going to go to school with and get to know. This is her experience of what people are supposed to be. And I love that. I want that. And then it dawned on me, my daughter's not going to go to Redeemer 30 years from now. Why, why would she do that? My daughters, we are making a point um, of, of trying to put her in situations that are racially integrated and, and to, to foster that, to develop that and to develop, develop her, her racial awareness and, 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 and to create a sense of belonging to a wider swath of humanity than just people who look like her. We're actively and intentionally doing that. And yet our church doesn't reflect that in churches are life. I'm a rector of this church. I'm a priest. I, I've given myself to it. I love it. I love what we do. And, and our, our faith is an important part of our lives and our families. But it doesn't reflect what her school looks like. And it won't reflect what her workplace will look like as far as I'm concerned. And, and so eventually she's going to hit an age. And I thought, why would she go here? Which is the question I posed to my vestry at the vestry retreat a month later. Uh, I, I told them the same story. And I said, I love this church and I love you. I didn't come here to blow things up. And my daughter won't go to this church 30 years from now. And your kids won't either. Your grandkids won't. Um, if, we're, if we're a racially uh, homogenous and culturally homogenous church, uh, we have a shelf life. We are not an expression of the kingdom of God. And, my, and I'm raising my daughter in such a way that she won't be interested in perpetrating that. So I guess the question for you, Vestry, is now what? What are we going to do? And it was really great 
because they were like, we love this idea, but what's your, what, what do you, what do you think we can do, Phil? What, what, what do you, what, what do you have in mind? And I said, oh, I have no idea. I don't have a clue. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not good at this. I have not, I've, I'm not an expert at this. I am telling you, I believe the Holy Spirit is calling us into this work. I don't have a clue what it means for us or how it will work. I'm just telling you, this is a thing. Um, a month after that, I was in a board meeting for an Episcopal nonprofit of which I'm a part, Episcopal Evangelism Society. Um, and, um, and we had a guest speaker who's now on the board, who's Stephanie Speller. Some of you know Stephanie, and she came to the diocese um, uh, last year, I think it was. It might have been a year before that. Um, awesome event that she, was, that she helped lead. Um, and she rolled out to this board, talked to them about um, two things, about the evangelism initiatives of the church with some of the revivals that they were doing in different dioceses. And connected to that, actually, to the evangelism work was this new commitment initiative called Becoming Beloved Community. And her reasoning for connecting them when she talked to us about it was really simple. Not easy, right? But simple. We all know the difference between easy and simple. Um, I, I, uh, I remember once having a, um, a, you know, like a personal trainer guy or whatever. I was teaching some gym class and he had you do the, the wall sits where you pretend you're sitting in a chair, but there's no chair. You're just leaning against the wall. And he goes, it's simple, but it ain't easy, right? So it, it, the, the connection is simple. The connection is um, that we are, uh, um, that we have a desire to bring new people into the life of this church because it has been meaningful to us. The Episcopal Church, we have found ourselves something some, somewhere in it. I didn't come from the Episcopal Church. It found me, and I've, I feel so grateful for the, for, the, for the connection to Jesus that has been, that has been, facilitated and empowered and enriched through my relationship to God and the Episcopal Church and the communities here. And also, boy, do we need to expand our understanding of who we are and change, uh, be transformed in that understanding and to and invite more people into it. And, and, and Stephanie's point was, you, you, you can't invite people, especially people who don't look like you, into this work until you've done some work. You, you don't have the right. And I had a friend, um, and, you know, and it's, it's put church aside for a second. In my own personal life, it, it works. You know, you make friends with people. Your, ki your kids make friends with people, and then you become friends with their parents. So my daughter's got black friends, and now I have black friends. Like, it's because her parents are my parents. We, we, we were like, we, we usher our kids back and forth to slumber parties, and we become friends. So I'm going to the, to the Western and Southern Open a couple years ago with some of my friends. And one of these guys that I'd mentioned to about coming to church sometime, come to Redeemer. And yeah, it's I know it's pretty white, but God, you'd be welcome. And I like you, and he likes me. And he goes, he's a really lovely guy. And we were just texting earlier today, and he was checking in on me. But he goes, you realize I'm never going to come to your church. And I was like... Well, I mean, I know, I mean, you know, I know, but like, and he goes, he goes, he goes, what, what, what people don't understand is we don't want to be there. You, you, you'll never be able to make a change until you understand that we don't want to be there and understand why we don't want to be there. It's not just that you want us or don't want us. We don't want it. And you don't know what you need to understand that. And I was like, uh, and this was before the tennis match. So we hadn't even like enjoyed the company yet. Right. Anyways, it, it, it was an opening for me. All of this happened within a couple months of each other. And all of this stuff starts to crackle and open up for me about how we needed to be transformed and how it wasn't going to be some simple a matter of inv inviting, quote unquote, the you know, new people. 
um, or or different people who were different from us, uh, skin color wise. It was a matter of like un Redeemer had work to do, and I and I have work to do, still do, and Redeemer has work to do. So thank God when I asked the question, what what is this going to look like? It it the work that we got into at Redeemer is the work of becoming beloved community, not as a program, because it's not a program. It's a long-term commitment. And it started out with my desire to make the makeup of our church look different. Now I'm like, well, we'll see what happens with that. I, that's beyond my control. But what I can control is my, my commitment and the leadership of the church's commitment to doing our work and doing in our, our understanding of how we got the way we are and what our part is in the white supremacy that infects this country in the systemic racism that is baked not only into our country, but into my church and its endowment and its privilege and its way of thinking and how to do that work in a way that is honest and authentic, not for the sake of virtue signaling and beating ourselves up publicly so we feel good, but actually for the purpose of openly learning what it means to be transformed in this work. So um, I've used up my time and there's so much more to say. What I guess I would just want to say is so, so we've created um, a Becoming Beloved Community Steering Committee, not a program, but a steering committee whose job it is to over, both to offer up and create certain programs, individualized programs, but also to, to take stock of the different ministries that we have and think carefully about how we can, they can be influenced by the work of Becoming Beloved Community. Not simply how each of them can sort of do its own little program, but how all of the different ministries and all the different parts of the life of our church can be influenced and impacted by the questions, the principles, and the, that are part of the Becoming Beloved Community initiative. Recognizing and repeating that language of a long-term commitment to racial justice, healing, and reconciliation. So we had the Sacred Ground um, program at the church last year. Uh, we've, we've instituted a sort of Sacred Ground 2. Uh, we, we secretly call it Sacreder Ground um, or more Sacred Ground. We don't really, don't worry, it's a joke. But, uh, but, but that idea of like, for people who've done this work, we keep going deeper and we're doing a book club on the book, Me and White Supremacy. Um, and I've made some, some specific commitments to members, leaders of the church about how I'm going to continue doing this work on my own. Um, it's, it's, and what I guess the last thing I'll say is, um, I don't even, I mean, we're, we're two years in, I still feel like we only haven't even barely begun and it's convicting and it's hard work and it's scary sometimes. And it is the most joyful work of my career. I have never been more grateful. I have never seen God's presence more clearly. I have never felt more connected to the gospel than I do doing this work with these people. Um, and they're, and my, my gratitude for that is immense. So um, that really is just the beginning. There's so much more to say, but that's, that's sort of where I am waking up into it and where our church is waking up to doing this work. And, um, and I will just one last thing say, um, the churches, I mean, you know, it's not like we get 100% attendance at all the things, but the church is really responsive and really grateful. Um, my community has been really supportive of this work. It's not me pushing against the tide. Um, they, they really are open to the work. Now, we'll see what happens with that. I don't mean to say, and we lived happily ever after. But people have often asked, the reason I bring that up is people often say, well, you're the rector and you want to see this happen. How does the church feel about it? By and large, large the church has been really, really supportive from people in all different positions of leadership and all different parts of involvement in the life of the church. 
Um, and, and for that, I'm really grateful too. So we'll see what, what comes of it. Thank you for, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, Phil. Larry. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Phil. Um, these are all great stories. I feel so inadequate. Uh, folks before me are giving so much enlightenment and opening themselves up to uh, everybody on this call. That's hard for me. Uh, but I'm, I, I will do my best uh, and hope that you will be okay with that. I want to start my talk off with a little preamble that I use to get myself ready uh, for this work. It pretty much de describes how I come to this work and what I bring to this work. So I'll just, I'll just say it and then we'll move on into the story. This, this is uh, a quote from Cory Booker, uh, former uh, presidential candidate for 2020 election. And he says, before you speak to me about your religion, first show it to me and how you treat other people. Before you tell me how much you love your God, show me and how much you love all his children's. Before you preach to me of your passion for your faith, teach me about it through your compassion for your neighbors. Uh, my name is Larry James, and I'm going to share with you my st personal story of growth, transformation, and participation in the seeding of Becoming Beloved Community in my parish, which is St. Barnabas up here in Montgomery, Ohio and also the Diocese of, of Southern Ohio. Um, so let me start by telling you a little bit about me, very little, <laughs> uh, to kind of set the stage for, for the work that we did. I am a recently retired uh, corporate executive uh, who's spent most of his career in two fields, marketing, strategic marketing, and the latter half of my career was in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I was a chief diversity officer uh, for one of the large health systems down here in Southern Ohio. I retired early, about four years ago at the age of 60. Uh, part of it was they had an awful nice package. They were downsizing and uh, they put the money out there and I said, great. But the real answer, if I was to be honest with you, is that I was done. I had, being in diversity work in the corporate environment is a constant drain, physically, mentally, emotionally. Every day you're on, you're on the front line and you're battling back somebody else's aggression. Um, it was, it's hard. It's very hard. 
and uh, I started to suffer physically from that type of uh, constant pressure. And so I really knew that I needed a change for my life. In essence, the bitterness of that experience in, corporate, in the corporate sector also led me to distance myself from this discipline. And it was two years after my early retirement that I found out that my church was mounting a very public denunciation of racism uh, in the form of becoming beloved community. That caught me off guard. Uh, I said, well, I need to find out more about this. And I contacted the bishop's office, um, asked him if they still were looking for volunteers to be part of this growth. And fortunately, that was possible. And I started with the um, Becoming Beloved Community Task Force for the Diocese of Southern Ohio. I met some of these fine people there for the first time. And what I discovered was this particular movement was so different from what I had been experiencing the last 15, 20 years of my corporate life. First, it was an acknowledgement from the church that racism is a sin and the church has been responsible historically with that sin growing and festering itself within our, our nation. It also, after the acknowledgement, the church said, we commit to the long-term eradication of racism and the perpetuation of racial justice, healing, and reconciliation, as well as uh, attention to better care for our creation. The third thing that made it very different for me is that just like in a corporate environment, the people in the movement didn't look like Lee, didn't look like me for the most part. I was still in the minority in this kind of work, which typically has been relegated to black people. Black people, you fix us. And so I said, gee, this is new. This is different. Let me dig a little deeper. And I went through the learning process, the learning journeys and the communities of practice and was very surprised that even with my background, I was learning so much more about race and racism in America. I was embarrassed that I was learning so much more. And thus I was trans beginning to transform. Fast forward, the task force finished its formation duties and was disbanded. And uh, now we have a leadership team that is take, helping to take this movement to the next level for the diocese. Right now, I, what I'm gonna to talk to you about 
sorry, I'm fumbling a little bit, is that I led along with our deacon of the parish, um, Jason Oden, we led the introduction of Becoming, Becoming Beloved Community to our parish, to St. Barnabas. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about that later, but now uh, I am a member of the Becoming Beloved Community Discovery, Learning, Discerning, and Action Team at St. Barnabas. I'm also a co-convener of the, the diocesan leadership team for Becoming Beloved Community. And because I've been transformed, I made the decision to go back and re-enter uh, the professional field of diversity, equity, inclusion, and cultural competence. Formed my uh, private consulting and executive coaching firm uh, a couple of years ago. It's called Culture Drivers. And so now I'm back in the, in the thick of it professionally, along with my volunteer efforts with the church. So what I want to talk to you about now is just how we introduce Becoming Beloved Community to our parish. Um, and I'm being told that it's kind of a unique methodology, but it's, it's not a new one to me because basically I took the perspective that the, the Episcopal Church is just another corporate entity with its infrastructures and its leadership and its politics. Sorry, but it's all there. And so my knowledge about how to get things done in the corporate sector, I wanted to apply that as much as possible and as much as my, my partners in crime would allow it to this particular movement, both for my parish and for our, dioc our diocese. So we started with a communications plan. And the plan element had five or, six five or six points to it. The first phase is emailing both our clergy and our vestry leadership, introducing them to becoming beloved community and asking for them to become involved. We followed up those emails with a personal in-person meeting. We were still able to meet. Uh, in person with the rector and with the executive team of the, of the vestry. Having gained their approval, we then went to the entire body of the vestry uh, with the same dog and pony show about becoming beloved community, what it is, why it is, um, and why we need to be involved as a church. We then, and I have to say that we got approval from the clergy, from the vestry executive team and the entire vestry to move forward with their endorsement. And so the next thing that we did was we had a Sunday service that was dedicated exclusively to becoming beloved community. The music was, was geared towards that, the, the sermon, uh, was designed to really impact and make folks aware of what we're doing as a parish. 
And then at the end, I got up and I took questions and answers uh, in the service. After the service, we then retired to our great hall where there's coffee and all that other stuff, you know, the social, socializing part. And folks sat down to go through another round of question and answers. I was very, very pleased that there were so many people in there that were interested in what we were doing. And at the end of that day, we were very, very uh, excited about the fact that there was this groundswell of support and interest and enthusiasm from the clergy, from our rector, from the vestry, and even tacit approval uh, from the rest, from the body, the congregation. That was very exciting. And I think it can be exciting for a, a number of churches if they go through this process. Um, I found it, I found that um, the different entities were very receptive to what we were trying to do and how we were doing it. Um, and uh, I would encourage you to think about that if you're still working on introducing this to your parish or if you want to go back and, and see how you can even enhance what you're doing with your parish. I have to be honest with you, the enthusiasm by the congregation from the congregation was not 100%. It never is for something this sensitive. Uh, there was a very, very small minority segment of our congregation that was not happy with this at all. Um, this was not something that was is supposed to be discussed in church or worked on in church. We came here to, to hear the gospel um, and the sermon, none of this political stuff. And those people still exist in our church. They still exist. And we have reached out to them. It's a very, it was a very interesting uh, kind of interaction. Like Phil's church, St. Barnabas is primarily white. Uh, and if there's any diversity, it's usually um, Asian, Asian or African. My wife and I, we are the only all black couple. Uh, anybody else that might be black, there it's an interracial couple. So couple that with the fact that um, Adrian and I had been with this in this church for thir over 30 years. And so everybody who's been there for a long, long time, they came there with us or after us. And that created an interesting dynamic in that this small uh, faction of people that were dead set against it and wanted to undermine it and get it out of their church, they implemented this passive aggressive type of communication throughout the church. And they sought out 
a few of my white brothers and sisters who were part of the Becoming Beloved Community uh, Committee. Um, there, are, there are 10 of us. Whenever they had the opportunity, they would get very aggressive with them. Uh, even intimidating them with emails, uh, saying, how dare you do this? This is not what we came here for. You need to stop this. And those, those messages would come back to me. And they needed to because I never got any of those messages. I never got as much as a hoot about anyone's discomfort or disliking becoming a beloved community. And I guess maybe that's partly because, I, and I say this in, in joking, partly because I'm a six foot two, 230 pound black man. Um, who still looks like he can do something. <laughs> but, uh, and, and that's not true, Mary Beth, you know, I'm, I'm a wimp. <laughs> um, but most of it is just the, the, the discomfort of speaking on these subjects with another person who's African-American or Black. It's coward. And I felt so badly um, for all of my colleagues in this work, but they are strong as, as strong as they can be and nothing deterred them. As a matter of fact, they're more assertive about this work than I am. Uh, every once in a while I have to say, hey, wait a minute, let's back that up a little bit. Let's not be reactionary. So much of what happens when bad people do bad things and say bad things it's not really what they do, it's how you respond to what they do that makes things worse. But we've been able to be at this uh, for over two years now. Uh, we went through um, Sacred Ground together and we, did, we actually partnered with three other parishes in the northern edge of Cincinnati and that was really wonderful. One of those parishes was an all black parish in Lincoln Heights. St. Simon's. Uh, and the two other parishes were as white as we were, uh, Glendale and Christ Cathedral in Glendale and uh, Ascent, Ascension of the Holy Trinity in Wyoming. Uh, so it was a nice diverse group and every month we would come together and share our impressions of the readings and the videos and the and the the bonding in the community that that uh, came about as a result of that was just absolutely fantastic just to see. I have a lot of these materials that I can share with you. I'll, I didn't. I started to ask to share my screen, but there's so much of it I probably would would have gone over. But I can package them and put them in Amy's hands. Uh, for anybody that wants to see what we did and how we did it. Um, our monthly meeting for the Becoming Beloved Community Action Team does three things, first of all, every meeting. We start with a prayer and we start with our, and we go from there to our mission and vision statement, which I can read for you. It says, the mission of St. Barnabas Becoming Beloved Community Learning, Discerning, and Action Committee is to help lead the parish's development 
and implementation of ongoing programs and activities that support the Episcopal Church's long-term commitment to racial healing, reconciliation, and justice with greater care for and preservation of God's creation. Our vision is something like this. Our committee's vision is to be seen as the primary facilitator of the parish's desired realization of one, a world where all people may experience dignity and abundant life, seeing themselves and others as beloved children of God. And two, the world we pray for when we say thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And the final thing that we do in preparing for our meeting is we reread our covenant, our covenant of engagement which I'm not gonna read all of, but I'll just um, say maybe the first three points. We have chosen to make spiritual, a spiritual commitment to ourselves and to each other to work towards becoming beloved community, a community which strives to embody the love of Jesus. We are guided by the following covenant. We will honor humanity and dignity for, of all people. We will practice active listening when someone is speaking. We agree to speak only for ourselves and we'll work to express our emotions in constructive ways. And there are 10 other points uh, that I will not read, but I will tell you after we developed this covenant, every single person on the committee signed it. And is, it is a, a formal document that we live by. I can't tell you how much this work means to me. Um, I think it saved my life. And I'm more devoted to it, more committed to it than even my own business. <laughs> and I need to fix that, I get a little bit more balance. But this work is important. And the people I'm doing it with, they are my family. We have become family. Um, we're not all from the same perspective. We have a wide range of, diver of diversity of thought in our committee. There's one gentleman who is really, really conservative. And I always think of him as the poster child for white privilege and complicit racism but he comes every day and he contributes every day. And sometimes we go at it, but we go at it in love. And there's a great deal of, of respect and admiration that is shared between the two of us and all the other members of the, of the group. I am glad that he's with us because when he's there, we grow, we grow in terms of temperament, we grow in terms of patience and understanding of another point of view. And as we do this work, that's a critical skill building process. And so we're blessed to have him. And I think he feels the same way about us. And just like everybody else, he's family. So, that's, that's our story. That's my story and, and the story of St. Barnabas and the journey that they're going towards becoming beloved community. I hope 
those of you who have gotten something out of it. Uh, and uh, if there's anything I can do to help with your journey, uh, please reach out to me. Thank you. Sadly, sad to say my story isn't um, very lengthy because I'm gonna start from my points of action in my life, um, which has been more recent. And um, background is that I grew up in an all white neighborhood in Oak Park, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. Um, never had a person of color in my schools. In fact, the first family of color that moved into the neighborhood, their house was burned. Um, the church that I served at, St. Luke's in Granville, uh, very educated, very upper income. We have one wonderful woman of color and that's the extent of our diversity. Other than we have a tremendously diverse, inclusive community of gays and um, people in our congregation. So really, where did this all start uh, for me? Um, the action part started uh, on May 25th with the killing of George Floyd. The next week, as most of us did, I watched protesters. I listened. I listened to women of color talk about how they had to parent their male children differently than what I grew up in. That they had to teach them how to be safe on the streets. I saw city after city people marching, not just the people of color, but the young, the old, the diverse, I listened to John Lewis. For seven days, I listened and I watched, and I listened and I watched more. How could I safely participate? I called our rector, Father Michael Ralph, and I called some other people in our St. Luke's family. On Tuesday, June 1st, Michael had an outside prayer vigil on the grounds of Brindu in Granville. It was outside, so my spouse, Jimmy, and I went. And I was touched deeply by the service and the prayers and those in attendance. And then when I went home, I made the mistake and turned on CNN. And our leader was walking across Lafayette Park, flanked by military after having dispersed the peaceful protesters with tear gas. And then you know what happened, the photo op with the Bible. My blood boiled over. And it was like a pressure cooker blowing its lid off. In retrospect, I think it could have been a little bit of the Holy Spirit's intervention. And it was time, actually it was way past time for me. There would be no more chances in my lifetime to perhaps make just a little bit different difference in the March for Justice. Four of us in the next week 
got together and we started talking and other people were expressing their same feelings of frustration. And so four of us said, what can we do for others in the Pierce that might be feeling the same way? If we were feeling that, I'm guessing that others felt that way too. So we decided to invite the parish to watch Just Mercy. How many of you have watched Just Mercy? The show of hands. A movie featuring lawyer Brian Stevenson, who represented a black man who was wrongly incarcerated for the killing of a young white woman. The movie was streaming free on Amazon. For those who were interested, they were asked to watch the movie and be able to reflect on the following questions. What scene touched you and why? Which character spoke to you and why? One thing you could do personally to take action on racial justice. And what action could St. Luke's take? One week later on June 30th and July 1st, we had 16 or 25 people signed up for those Zoom sessions and we divided them into five groups. The discussions were intimate at times. Some responses filled with anger, some with displaced re frustrations that were falling out in their workplace. All grateful for having open discussions about their own feelings. The five group facilitators then met the following week and discussed what were the core issues that were being expressed in those sessions. Worship, what can we do differently? Adult education, early childhood, action, and communications. We each took an area, the five facilitators, and we talked with the different ministry leaders at St. Luke's about racial justice and how they saw their different constituencies participate in this issue. We needed a central theme for the coming year at St. Luke's, and they all said, let's find one. As it evolved, and as my good friend Maribah Mansfield kept educating me about BBC, we all became aware that BBC and the resources available with the diocese for St. Luke's could work. Now I will tell you that St. Luke's has never been a real positive agent of the diocese, not of my doing, but I think there's some history there, who knows what it might be. But the resources and the powerful BBC was just so compelling of an issue and so relevant to our church where we were. We said, let's go ahead and see if we can get the vestry to endorse it. And we felt it was impossible, I mean, uh, possible for the, uh, to go forward without the vestry endorsement. So I prepared a PowerPoint, meant to went to vestry, and 100%, they said, yep, let's go for this. So right now, Reverend Michael Ralph and Reverend John Kaufman are in the process of identifying various opportunities in worship to introduce BBC, which I think would be a great topic for discussion around clergy issues and how in worship we can um, share with each other how we're doing that. 
then we started, we immediately invited and I sat in on the St. Stephen's session with Carl and Maribah on um, the way of love. So we said, let's do that at St. Luke's. So we're now doing the eight week way of love program. Uh, and we're in our fifth week of that. We have 16 people that are signed up for that. And now we're in conversations about how do we inform the congregation on what BBC is. We will be doing through some various communication channels on with our new website that has been designed. BBC is a header on that. Uh, front and center, Facebook, sermons, quarterly offerings with book clubs like White Fragility, movie nights for our kids of all and families of all ages, followed by Zoom discussions. Direct mail and various other means is just the beginning. Our invitations went out yesterday to the Just Mercy group and to the Way of Love participants to join the diocesan-wide sacred grounds initiative. So all I can say to you right now as I close, just stay tuned. The train has left the station at St. Luke's. Thank you. I feel funny going um, because everyone has really powerful stories and really um, well-spoken stories about becoming beloved community. Um, but I'll just tell from my perspective, um, I guess in part why I'm here, uh, I'm brand new to um, becoming beloved community. Um, when I first heard about it, um, my thought was, oh boy, another Episcopal Church effort at anti-racism that we've been dealing with for well, certainly my adult life, but actually all of my life, um, you know, one more, uh, in my opinion, I was afraid it was going to be one more um, ineffective, ineffectual, um, not helpful learning sessions that people just went and got a certificate for um, and nothing else had to happen. Um, but I'm impressed that it's clear to me that um, BBC lays out a personal, very spiritual path that can actually lead us, not just individually, which is important enough, um, it's hugely important, but collectively, which is where so much, I think, can break down um, in terms of, well, a lot of it is white people realizing how much work we have to do and then actually doing it and staying doing it um, is where the breakdown in my awareness occurs. Um, racism has been a part of my life, um, my whole life. Um, I grew up in an overtly racist household um, and we moved from, I, every member of my family has um, I've heard them all say the N-word um, multiple times, everybody in my family with the exception of my sister, um, generations back and everything else. Um, and then we moved from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Memphis, Tennessee, where there's no racism at all. Um, my gosh. And so I've lived this life very much steeped in um, and aware of racism and not really sure what to do about it. Um, and I'm just glad that I found a path that I can take with 
a bunch of other people that helps me um, work on and stay working on um, my own stuff on a spiritual path that will lead to certainly my own transformation um, in a lot of ways and help me stop being reactive um, to a lot of pieces of the puzzle of repairing relationships across these racial lines that are so frayed. Um, and so while I'm learning a lot factually, um, and I'm always surprised and embarrassed, I think Larry said he was embarrassed at one point, and I identified with that. I'm always embarrassed by what I keep not knowing, and I keep thinking I know something and keep learning more, um, and then feeling helpless or reactive um, more and more as I've gotten older. You know, it's like, I, the, the earliest remembering I have of a national call for on a national a call for a national dialogue on race that I was aware of I know there were plenty more but where I where I was becoming socially and politically aware was um after the Rodney King beating um and you know I'd gotten at this point I've gotten very frustrated with calls for national dialogue on race and those going absolutely nowhere. Um, and so I'm just glad to have found something that's a spiritual path and I can walk it with other people who actually want to take the journey as opposed to show up for anti-racism training and uh, learn things they think they already know, myself especially, um, and just walk with other people in the broken way that we walk these things and um, have a more spiritual, non non-judgmental way of growing into who God wants us to be together collectively, um, working on ourselves um, and hopefully figuring out ways to help other people who might actually want to work on something themselves or the larger, you know, culture of race, race relations in our country, um, which I thought were better at one time, but I realized they were, a lot of stuff was just smoldering and hiding. So I'm just glad to have this opportunity to walk with some other people who are sincere and want to walk it um, and grow with some folks. And hopefully this is one of the ways, one of the things our church will do that'll stick, has some collective, hopefully, um, power uh, to its of change to the, to our our systems and to our individual people and our collective group of people. Um, and so that's why I'm here and I'm just learning, 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 and it's hard work. Um, but I finally, I finally feel like I found the, the path I can take um, with folks that has a spiritual bent to it, that has more promise of helping me grow and helping me grow with other people and hopefully finding a way to make larger swaths of our uh, place go of our church. So that's really it. I don't have a ton to say. Our church is on the cusp of, you know, learning about, learning about uh, becoming beloved community. Um, mentioned it more than a, a, a few times, kind of the issue of race in our country and get a lot of crickets going. Um, so we found a group of parishioners who are interested in taking a plunge and 
love to see where that goes. So we'll see if, if they wind up doing it, but I'm in it myself in whatever way I can be. So hopefully I'll see more of you all and a lot more of some of my folks here too. Thanks. Thank you to everyone. Thank you to each one of you have, who have shared. And um, I'm just reminded of the power of what it means to be witness to one another. Um, and it's a gift to be in this journey together. And here's to gathering again next week um, to continue to explore. So with that, peace be with you, everyone. Thank you to all who shared their stories, and a special thank you to Amy Houghton for letting us use this teaching for this episode. Join us in our conversations here as we continue our commitment to becoming beloved community at the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer in the Queen of the Midwest, Cincinnati, Ohio.